Welcome to People, Parasites, and Plagues. I'm Liliana Salvador. And I'm David Peterson, your host for today's episode. Today's topic is on media coverage of the 1918 influenza pandemic. And our guest is Dr. Janice Hume from the Department of Journalism in the Grady College for Mass Communications and Journalism. The COVID pandemic has caused society to recall the events of the 1918 pandemic as we continue to navigate through unknown territories. But just how similar are these two pandemics? Our guest today is a historical journalist who has studied the coverage of the 1918 pandemic and could offer insight into the parallels of these two pandemics. So with us today is Dr. Janice Hume, distinguished professor, researcher, author, and head of the Department of Journalism at the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication. Her research interests are grounded in historical journalism, specifically collective memory and its relation to press coverage. Janice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So I want to start off by saying that we are um, cognizant of the irony of a couple of scientists interviewing a professional journalist, (laughs) but we will do do our best. It's pretty ironic that you have on your public health podcast a a journalist who doesn't really know anything about viruses or germs. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we're going to make a really interesting story out of this, so... (laughs) I also think so. And so, and for a start, Janice, so what attracted you to study media coverage of the 1918 pandemic? Well, um, back uh, this research I did a number of years ago, and my interest is in how the press relates to public memory and public anxieties. And believe it or not, when I did this research uh, years ago, my argument was that the flu epidemic of 1918 had been forgotten, um, that it killed more people than did World War I, and yet people really didn't know that much about it. And so my uh, research really looked at why was this forgotten. Now, fast forward all these years later, and as your introduction said, um, I wouldn't argue that it's forgotten now. Public memory serves the needs of the present. Um, and so because we're, you know, in the midst of this terrible pandemic, people are recalling 1918 more, more than, they, than they used to. So our memory serves our current needs. And that, that's, that's initially why I was interested in it, though. And, and actually, in that exact work in your article on the press portrayal of the 1918 epidemics, you focused on in journals and magazines and not so much in the newspapers of the period. Uh, are there any special reason why you did that? Again, my interest um, was really in how uh, media reflect collective ideas, collective memory, collective anxieties. And so I chose magazines um, because they were the only medium in 1918 that had a national audience. Um, and magazines also are more contemplative in nature. Um, and so I felt like those magazines would offer a better window into what sort of the country as a whole was thinking. There were big metro city daily newspapers uh, that were, I'm sure, covering it you know, as well. But I really wanted that national perspective. So I, I want to touch again on the concept of 1918 as, as forgotten, which for much of the last century, I think it really was. Um, And how does something that big become forgotten? You know, it's, it's very interesting. I think it has to do with the nature of how we tell stories. 
and the things that we choose to remember. Um, if you really think about what gets remembered, there are often uh, museums, markers, stories that come down through generations, and the flu epidemic was different from any any of those kinds of things. You have war memorials, you have all sorts of things, but there's not really anything that's purposely out there to commemorate the lives lost in the 1918 flu epidemic. Stories have to have a narrative, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and um, they have to make sense, and they have to have heroes. Um, and as I found in my analysis of these magazine articles, a lot of those elements were missing. So I guess at the time, we had an enemy, but it was somewhat unknown since they didn't understand what caused the flu. That's correct. As a matter of fact, a major theme in the coverage that I found in, in these magazine articles was how mysterious the disease was. It was a sphinx. It was something that couldn't be understood by even the doctors and the medical experts. And so that um, that definable enemy that, you know, being able to get your hands on what it was around what it was, you know, didn't happen. So actually, in my family, we have a connection to the 1918 that I wasn't aware of for years. And that's the fact that my grandfather, who had joined the army during World War I and was in the barracks, caught the flu and it almost killed him. It actually took him three months to recover. I think he was on a quarantine ship in New York Harbor for three months. And I had never heard this story until, um, so somewhere around 1999 or 2000, a book by the author Gina Collada came out called Flu. And I had read that book and I think I was relating it to my parents when my dad told me the story about my grandfather almost dying, but I had never heard that before and probably wouldn't have if I hadn't related the book. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it, it really hit the military very hard. As a matter of fact, it, I, I think people believe that ground zero for the influenza epidemic in our country was out in Kansas in, at Fort Riley, uh, which is another reason I was interested in it because I was out there. I used to work at Kansas State University. And so it's right next to Fort Riley. So, but that was, it, it spread through the military, you know, like wildfire and, um, and killed many people. Um, and which is a sad, sad part of it. You know, the flu in 1918 hit young people. Unlike our COVID pandemic, which hits people of all ages, and, and there are deaths from pe with people of all ages, ages, but the vast majority of people who are dying are older. Um, but the flu hit people in their tw uh, 20s and 30s, um, and it hit fast, and they died quickly. And uh, so there was there's a little bit of a difference in who the victims are in this current pandemic pandemic than the one in 1918. I mean, it's even surprising nowadays to think that it affected the young and healthy most. How did they process that kind of knowledge then? How that came through in many of these magazine articles was concern about, about orphans and how the pandemic was affecting families. And I have a really sad quote from a magazine. It, it, stories like this are now coming in. 10 mothers or fathers dead in one block, 12 applications in 36 hours to the overseers of the poor from as many widows, all of whose husbands were under 30 and leaving families ranging from two to six each. So we had young people, young parents with children who were just dying so quickly and suddenly um, and leaving these families just, you know, destitute. Um, in those days, you didn't have working women in the family for the most part. And so you can imagine the economic upheaval 
evil that happened in 1918. That just sounds devastating. And in your work, you actually cover how the media in 1918 flu pandemic focused on urging people to not worry or anxious over the pandemic. So what, what do you feel was behind this advice? Was the message to avoid public anxiety, you know, and when, especially when we see scenarios, cases like this in such small neighborhoods in cities? Yes, a, a major theme in this coverage was the idea that worrying would make the pandemic worse. And they directed that message to tell people, don't worry because it will, it will make you get it easier. Um, and then for the people who had the flu, it said that it would impair your ability to, to recover. And so this, this idea that don't worry, one of the quotes said, you know, worry kills the uh, victim of, of the flu, just like it kills the soldier. Because remember, we're, you know, coming right out of World War I at the time. There were public health officials interviewed who suggested that whiskey was a great thing to drink <laughs> because it, it helped keep you from panicking. And so these are, these are health experts who are telling people, do what you can. There was one great quote from a public health official in Chicago who said, you know, I would even advise carrying a rabbit's foot on a chain. If that keeps you from worrying, then, then do it. So the, the worry, the, the, the concern that worry was going to make the pandemic worse is what happened in, in 1918. It's interesting now, and I haven't studied the coverage of the current pandemic you know, in as much detail. I'm just an interested observer like everybody else. But to me, the concern about worry that I see now is people are saying, you're worrying too much about this. You know, Don't let this run your life. And, and so I think the, the message is different in our, in our current media environment about anxieties. But still, at the time, were these messages more from the government side or more from the media side or a mixture of the two? I think it was a mixture of the two. And I think the media, they were quoting medical experts and at the same time criticizing medical experts for not understanding what was happening. There was, a, there was criticism of the doctors. And, and that's another difference, I think, in what was going on then and now. Now, um, what you see, the vast majority of the coverage is trust the medical experts, trust the medical experts. But then it was, why can't they figure this out? Why don't they? This is a mysterious disease that, they, that no one knows what to do with. And so those were differing kinds of messages. And so were there at the time also people that were negating the pandemic that what actually was happening to them? No, not that I saw in any of this, any of this coverage. Now, some, uh, some magazines were silent on the issue. A number of really highly circulating magazines, Ladies Home Journal um, is one of them, didn't mention the pandemic at all, which is, seems remarkable to me because it went on for more than two years and um, you know, a lot of people died. Um, in the index that I was using to find these articles was Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature and uh, many, many more articles in Reader's Guide focused on the war than focused on the flu, which I think is interesting and I think has some, says something about the way journalists do their jobs. I think we know how to cover war. We know, you know who the enemies are. We know what the stories are. We know what to focus on. And this flu was different. And, and we didn't really know how to tell that, tell that story. 
So, of course, uh, the 1918 flu pandemic happened in the context of the ongoing World War One. How did that affect journalism? I've I've read that the reason that the flu became known as the Spanish flu was that Spain was a non-combatant and was not censoring its press, and so they were the first to report about the flu. They they unfortunately got tagged with causing the flu, and that's certainly probably not the case. So it seems as if there was some censorship of the newspaper press, but was there of other media as well? Um, in a, in if you're talking about coverage of war, there's always censorship of the press. There's there you know there's always government censorship when it comes to war news. How that impacted Spanish flu coverage, and I shouldn't call it Spanish flu, <laughs> <laughs> the 1918 flu coverage, um, I, you know, I, I can't tell you that. But in times of war, there is always a censorship of the media. Going back to your, to your work, you discuss in your article, you discuss public memory and collective memory suppression. Can you explain uh, those con- concepts to us and, uh, and what actually they represent in a pandemic situation like this? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, public memory is the way a society remembers its past that really has more to do with its current needs than what actually happened in the past. And I've done a lot of work in this, not just focusing on the pandemic, but focusing on all, all sorts of other things. And we really do change the way we remember what happened in the past, you know, based on our current needs. If, if you look at how we remember George Washington, for example, he was remembered very differently in the early 1800s. He was up on a pedestal, was almost godlike. And yet, and then, you know, as, as time moved on, we remembered Washington as an inventor. We remembered him as somebody who was more down to earth. We remembered him in different ways, really based upon who we are. So our memories reflect us and and serve us. In a pandemic, it's really more about who died and how people tried to mitigate the flu than the stories about the flu. And if you look back at something like a war, you have different kinds of stories. You have stories that are focused on people. You have stories that are focused on particular victories. A pandemic is very different. And so I think that's part of the reason it isn't remembered. And it'll be interesting to see how COVID is remembered um, because we are getting so much coverage in the media of it. And yet I would argue that we're not focusing or focusing very little on the losses. It's all about should you wear a mask and what you should you do to protect yourself. And, and the, the losses are statistics, you know, 250,000 people dead, but you don't have pictures of people who are suffering from it. Very few, the journalists can't get close because they're, they're you know, they could be infected. The, you just don't have the pictorial story and you, you haven't seen collective mourning. You haven't seen collective, you know, grief about these people who are dead. You, we've just been getting numbers. And so, you know, I've gone round and round with your question, but I really think that a, a pandemic poses some very interesting barriers to memory. So on that same vein, if we look back 
even farther to the plague, the Black Death. Uh, we see that recorded in art and in literature at the time. And in your article, you note that historians found that the 1918 pandemic was largely absent from art and literature, which I find just really fascinating. Can you talk some about that and then tell us where you think COVID-19 will be remembered in, in art and literature? No, that's that's such a great question because you know I don't I don't know how it will be remembered. We're just in the in the thick of it. I, I do think that in 1918, so much of the emphasis of the storytelling was focused on on the war. You also have a a time in history. You're in the progressive era where the focus of a lot of journalism is on exposing corruption in, you know, various institutions. We have the press's focus on different things. And again, this was so new. And I think we're seeing this here that, you know, this, it's been a hundred years since we've had anything like this happen. And everybody is shocked and, and trying to figure out how to deal with it. I think the press made up of people <laughs> who were shocked and trying to figure out how to deal with something that they couldn't get their hands on. And I think that has to do with the storytelling. And I think that, you know, the, the cliche that I don't necessarily believe to be hundred percent true, but the cliche is the press writes the first draft of history. And so if, if the stories at the time weren't nailing sort of what was going on, I think it's more difficult for the arts and literature to to follow suit. Um, and this is just my conjecture, but I think it was a story that they found difficult to tell. And so it didn't resonate. And so it didn't get picked up. So you, you noted that you found evidence of public distrust of the medical community, uh, largely because they were just as befuddled as, as anyone else. Um, I was surprised recently to come across an article about basically anti-mask movement in 1918. I think it was focused in San Francisco, but I was, uh, prior to that, I guess I was swayed by all the pictures from 1918 of people wearing masks. And so I was really surprised at that. I don't know if, if any anti-mass sentiment was seen in maybe newspapers, but I don't know about, about journal articles. No, it didn't, it didn't come up at all. It was, you know, the, the, these articles said, you know, cover your mouth, no promiscuous spitting, you know, don't lick your fingers. It was how to prevent the, yourself from getting or spreading this disease. And I didn't see any coverage of in these magazines. And again, magazines are sort of geared for a national audience. And so I didn't see any evidence there, but it wouldn't surprise me that if you've, you know, if you pinpointed where the anti-mask movement was going on and looked at the local press coverage, you probably will find some evidence of, of that. Yeah, I was, you know, when I first read that, I was surprised by that. But then I think we're all getting a little bit of COVID-19 fatigue, even though, of course, all of us are being really good about wearing our masks. It's, it's tiresome. It is very tiresome. We all want vaccines and we want this to be over because, uh, yes, COVID fatigue is happening. And, and I'm sure because that went on longer, I'm sure there was pandemic fatigue um, in the, you know, in 1918, uh, 1919, but it really didn't, 
uh, it didn't bubble up in this coverage. They, what did bubble up was concern about, is it going to come back? Is it going to come back? Um, you know, once it began to fade. So that, that was sort of how the coverage ended, but they, there was no talk of fatigue. One thing that I um, found surprising in your article was the what I saw is relatively little coverage of the flu pandemic in magazines and journals. I think, you know, 20, I might have the numbers not exact, but 26 some articles in 2018, another decreasing a few in 2019. And by 2020, it had dropped by more than half. And then you've related the fact that some prominent journals didn't have any articles. Why so little coverage in these, these in the kind of the national press? I think their focus was elsewhere. You know, as I said, I think we've long, I say we, calling myself in the journalism world, journalists have long understood how to cover a war. Uh, this was a world war that they were coming out of. It, it, it took, uh, it was expensive to cover. It took a lot of human resources and money. We knew how to cover that. I don't think we really knew how to cover this pandemic up, apart from, you know, kind of what you're seeing today, concerned about not being able to keep up with the burying the corpses, not enough doctors, not enough government aid, all of those things were part of the coverage. But in terms of the numbers, I, you know, I think it was covered less because the resources of these organizations were looking overseas to the war. Janice, based on that, do you think that we've learned from that, that there were like specific communication practices that were learned during that pandemic that are currently being used? No, I think that it's so different. I mean, we are living in a world of digital media. We live in a world of social media. We live in a world of 24-hour cable television. When you look back to 1918, it was newspapers and magazines, and they were very powerful and high circulations. People read them. And so it's just a, a, different, a different media world. Um, one of the things that I'm seeing similarly is that one of the mistakes I think they made in 1918 in this coverage was they, they didn't focus on people. Again, the deaths were statistics. They didn't focus on them. I, in this coverage, I found only two instances that the these magazine stories focused on a healthcare worker trying to save people. The only two sort of heroic figures, quotation marks around heroic, were nurses. And any journalism student knows that you have to make your coverage about the people. You have to tell stories that are about people. And to get people interested in stories about statistics is very, it's very difficult. And so that lack of focus on, you know, the sacrifices that real people were making, telling real stories about real people. You didn't see that in those. Um, and you had those, you know, only two stories that focused on nurses and the rest of them were just, you know, wear your mask. Doctors don't know what they're doing, you know, all of those things. So I think the narrative, I hope, is where, we'll, where we will be doing a better job and, and are doing a better job now. We need to focus on the fight. I think the interesting news about the vaccines, um, I think the interesting news about sort of the different ways that they're taking care of people and the sacrifices of not just healthcare workers, but other workers. I think the press needs to be focusing on those human stories and not on the just, just the numbers. 
Yes, so I would say that that is one of your advices for a historical journalist 100 years from now to research an outbreak. That would be one of your advices. Do you have any other? Yeah, I mean, I think that I would tell a journalist 100 years from now, report the facts. Your job is to not panic people. Your job is to tell the truth in the best way that you can. And if you are covering a, a crisis, your job is to cover it in a way that people can understand it and tell stories that make people care. And those are the, the, the important things. Get it right and focus your stories so that people will care to read them or watch them or, you know, scroll through them or however they're getting their information. And a hundred years from now, you know, who knows how people will be getting their information. So Janice, where can our listeners find more information about, about your research? Oh, this particular article that we're talking about was published in a, in a journal called Journalism and Mass Communication Quarterly. Um, there's a lot of work out there by me and by others about public memory and public anxiety. And so I think, you know, just find your university library and go in and sit down and enjoy <laughs> reading about and- and I should mention on our podcast website, we will have a link to your page in at Grady College. So Dr. Hume, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. This has been truly interesting. So thanks for your time. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you. Additional information about Dr. Hume's research interests can be found on our website, ppp.uga.edu, where you also find information about past and upcoming episodes. People, Parasites, and Plagues is brought to you by the Faculty of Infectious Diseases and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia.